Talking Theater with Sir Holworth Felixstowe Smooth, the only podcast on earth about the theater. In war, as with prostitution, amateurs are often better than professionals. The wise and much are said cheeky words of Napoleon Bonaparte, and it rings true, does it not? I would only add one thing to really set off its validity, and that is that it's never the case when it comes to the Scherzer. So it should read, quote, In war, as in prostitution, amateurs are often better than professionals, comma, except for in the theatre, where it is well evidenced that professionals are a lot better than amateurs, and whilst people may moan about ticket prices, if they've ever been to a midweek matinee of a provincial production of Sweet Charity, where all the young whores are played by overweight 60-year-old divorcees, or soon-to-be, they understand very quickly that you get what you pay for, end quote. It's a bit of a mouthful, but I think it's a worthy addition, so I'd simply add that. Add that, Napoleon, and then I think you're on to something. Add that. Add that, Napoleon. Add that. Good day. My name is Sir Holworth Felix to Smooth, and as well as having once owned a Bengal tiger who I ended up having to shoot dead because it gave me a funny look, you really can't take any chances with big cats. I'm also the host of this podcast you're listening to right now, Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. But today, I am a sad man. Oh, I'm a little bit sad man. Oh, yes. Um, oh, yeah, but I'm just, I'm just, I'm just very, very sad at the end of the day. Are you sad, Holworth? Oh, yes, I am. I'm very, very sad, Holworth. Oh, hang on, you, what, you're Holworth? Well, yes, I am, and I'm very, very sad. Well, I, I know you're sad. I'm sad. No, I, and I, but I'm Holworth. Well, you're Holworth. Well, I, you can't be whole. We can't both be Holworth. I can assure you, I, I am. We can't both be... Are you calling me a liar? Well, somebody's lying, and it isn't me. Well, it isn't me either. Are you starting... You, you're the one starting something. I've got a knife in my bag, you know. Well, so have I. I carry it to cut my apple with. At least that's what I tell the police. Look, who are you? I told you. I'm whole with Felix to smooth, and I'm very sad. Well, you can't be because I am. Listen, I am hot. I'm sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. I got a bit carried away with a riff there and it backfired somewhat. Though it has reminded me to take my morning medication, which uh, patently I had forgotten to do. Anyway, lucky for me it's a suppository, so we won't lose any airtime as it's um, just gently now being popped back in. Oh, careful, Sean. Now, why am I sad? Uh, well, a fine actor, a friend, a, a Scottishman has died. And by coincidence, so has Sean Conroy. Sean, myself and Hamish all went to the same private school as teenagers, as it goes, in the 1930s and were as thick as thieves, uh, if indeed the thieves were as thick as about a 32-inch waist. I was not slim about them. I was always the leader of the pack, with Sean and Hamish like two sidekicks who always mimicked each other. It is bittersweet, then, that they should die on the same day, and both in their sleep. Sean surrounded by his family, Hamish at the wheel of his car on the M4. 
He loved napping, did Hamish McCrandall, and I told him it would get the better of him. Well, now they've gone to the big sleep. Or the big apple, I, I can't remember. Hamish had a few strange wishes after his death. He was in the big house for a time, thinking about it. Um, armed robbery, yes. He held up the laundrette in Dundee, made about £6.40, which was a lot of money in Scotland in 2014. He was court-ordered to pay the money back, which, of course, he couldn't do, so they gave him ten years' hard labour, working in the constituency offices of Gordon Brown. Bastards! So that's why I'm sad. That's why it's been a, a difficult week for me coming to terms with um, their passing. Hamish aside, Sean and I had a special bond, if you'll pardon the pun. It must be said. In 1987, at the height of our powers, and whilst we were both married, there was an affair which began when we were both working on the picture he eventually won his Oscar for. It was short-lived, uh, in fact I think it was about 15 minutes, but I must say it was deep and meaningful. Well, certainly deep. And if the walls of the broom cupboard in Studio 22 could talk, they would say, Bloody hell, two famous actors have just done a naughty thing between Tate's in here. Hell was as a wazzocks. I've always thought it's ironic we should meet and make the sexy time on the set of a film called The Untouchables, because in truth, he could not keep his hands from me. We never spoke about it. Conry lived out his days with various women, and it took me until 1996 to come out of a closet. But when our paths would cross at award shows, he'd give me that special look. You know the one. That twinkle in the eye as if to say, I've touched your willy. He was a master of that look. When I tried it in the past to former lovers, the slight drop of the head, the squinting of the eye, the pursed lips. People just asked me if I'd had a stroke. That was Condry, though. A lover. I will say one further thing on the man. Conry, I mean. Hamish is dead and was incinerated within hours, and we must forget him as quickly as possible. No, on Conry... I've heard a lot of naysayers complain about him because of some remarks he made regarding the hand-slapping of women. For clarity, this was an interview printed in the 1965 edition of Playboy, where Conry said, and I quote, I don't think there is anything particularly wrong about hitting a woman, although I don't recommend doing it in the same way that you'd hit a man. An open-handed slap is justified if all other alternatives fail, end quote. Now, there's a couple of things on this. Um, firstly, I think, and I mean this quite sincerely, if you'd met his first wife, you'd have got a sense of why he held this view and would have some sympathy with it, I assure you. But let's park that one for now, OK? My issue with Conray is in the second part where he says, if all else fails, because I think he's missed a trick here. A slap is violent and totally unnecessary. That we must all agree on, surely. Unnecessary, because we know, do we not, that nine times out of ten, some deep-throated shouting or menacing coercion is nearly always enough to calm, subdue or restrain a combative lady. I've always found that the common slap, or thwack, can often induce a physical repost, or even worse result in the other sex becoming so used to it, they grow numb to it. No. No, no. You want them to really feel it. 
so something psychological that has the power to stay with them and be lasting, whether it be, I don't know, verbal jousting or untold threats, will always be a more effective and lasting solution. You might also hurt yourself slapping them, especially if they have a cold or coarse face, which is likely if you're in that situation in the first place. Failing that, I've found you can always simply pull out your switchblade, because at the end of the day, as I always say, a knife is a knife. And with that, on with the show! I recall so distinctly my first experience of amateur dramatics. I was but a babe, and by that I mean a young child, not a sheep pig. I was perhaps, I don't know, 18 months, maybe two years, and I recall one day my uncle coming into me with a broad smile, sitting me down and revealing to me that he had not one, but as many as two socks on each of his hands. He then crouched behind the sofa, and straining from the pressure on his sciatica, moved the makeshift puppets around as if the socks had come to life. He bopped them about, a boppersy, 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 had them talking to each other and interacting as if they were real people. I sat there, absolutely terrified. To me, as a child, it was most disturbing to see this old man on his knees, putting on strangely high voices and using his socks, which should have been on his feet. Don't forget. He put them on his hands. And of course I smiled and laughed at him, hoping that my diligence in playing along would mean he didn't hurt me or my family, which I certainly was fearful of. You see, as a child, I had no concepts of the theatre, puppetry, or performance, and I'm perplexed even now, as I was then, to why they assumed I would. Now, to me, the man was clinically insane, and his distortion of the common sock was to me a possible prelude to greater disturbances. Hats on the nose, shoes on his bum, knee ties, the mind boggles. Luckily, the spectacle came to an end, and as everyone started clapping and inducing me to clap, I felt a little safer, knowing that presumably I'd passed my uncle's test, and we'd all be safe for another day. Looking back, though, if we accept it was a performance, and that the person delivering it wasn't being paid a fee, and that they were insane, then all three would count towards a sure and certain definition of the amateur dramatic. And that's how it's defined today. Voluntary insane performance. But before we get into the shows themselves, it's important to look in greater detail at the people who make it all happen. The Amdramas. The saying goes, those who can, do. Those who can't, teach. Those who can't teach, teach drama. Those who can or can't teach drama, do amateur theatre, and those who do amateur theatre can't do and never could, and that's why they do amateur and not professional. As a saying, it's not just a mouthful, I think it's a little bit hurtful, and I find it a little bit horrible, and I would never say it. I wouldn't even dream of mentioning it or uttering such a saying, because even saying it out loud suggests there is something in it, which a lot of people think there is. Don't get me wrong, but not me. I don't think there really is anything in it, and that's why I would never even say it. Not on this podcast. I just wouldn't say it. 
Even so, it's worth pointing out that a great many people in amateur theatre do come from the education sector, and none so more than the production team. Not being content with bossing helpless students about by day, these drama dullards transfer that power to the wider community by night, where they direct and choreograph Fame the Musical in a village hall like it's Chekhov's Uncle Vanya at the Nash. Note. For those not in the business, the word Nash stands for Her Royal Majesty Queen Elizabeth II Regina's National Theatre. We use it as a shorthand so we feel important, but the use of the word actually originated from when the theatre cafe first opened, where, curiously, it only served raw vegetable crudité and breadsticks with a selection of delicious dips. The sound that patrons made in the cafe as they ate the lovely but admittedly brittle food on offer stuck in the hearts and minds and mouths of the actors who would pass through to rehearsals and hear the gnash, gnash, gnash of the sloppy tongues and teeth. Thus, the gnash was born. In line with this, you might also hear people calling the National Theatre munch, crunch, chomp, knack-knack and chukka-chukka-chukka, as in... Are you working at the moment? Oh yes, I'm doing Henry V with Rufus Norris at the Chukka Chukka Chukka. But as I say, we mostly use Nash these days. Of the production team, the directors in amateur theatre will mostly be men, the choreographers will be women, and the musical directors will be somewhere in between, sometimes remarkably so. You can't be a good conductor without a feminine wrist and length of bone, for instance, but you also need that booming male timbre in the voice in order to bellow at the altos for singing the wrong harmony again. Bloody altos. Overall, the amateur prod team, or pro-am, or pram, or prom, are mostly harmless, but if you are sat there now thinking, mm, I like the sound of that, I, I think I'd be good at that, I think I might like to do that, you might also like to consider that just that consideration would probably deem you a bit annoying as a person. More popular to the entire operation are the cast of amateur dramatic societies, which we split into principal parts and the chorus. In the professional world, we tend to call the chorus ensemble because directors go somewhere to feeding them into the fabric of the piece. In Andram, though, they're kept as the chorus precisely in order to denote their separation from the principal parts, especially as the director's main job with them is to hide them behind bits of set and keep them as far away from the story as possible. That is, unless you need 40 people to sway along to the Black Hills of Dakota in Act 2 of Calamity Jane, in which case, chorus, come forward. The principals are those actors who play all the speaking and the solo singing parts in the show and fancy themselves as local celebrities in places literally nobody outside of those places even knows exist. The sort of place which, when the BBC cut to it to get the count on election night, you turn to your partner and say, where? And then when they explain where it is after googling it extensively, really digging down to find it, you go, oh, oh, no, I've never heard of it. Although gifted amateur is a description I'd normally reserve for myself in relation to my weekend volunteering at the Pauper's Gynecology Clinic, it's true it's used more in polite conversation to describe the scarce type of actor you see on the Andran stage, who by all accounts might be able to make a living from actual palpable talent. Because of their talents, they will often play the top lead in the shows, and as one might expect in the professional world, they will be good singers, adept with a script, and have a healthy attitude in relation to shagging their way around the cast. 
Where the main difference comes in is in the progression of the amateur career. In the professional world, survival of the fittest is key, and age plays a large factor, and, and, and rightly so. If you're a talented juvenile like Bradley Pitt, you can expect a long shelf life because a rich lifestyle and an encouraging dose of patriarchy will keep you in the sunlight of the industries and factions. If you're a professional female actor or actress or lady performer or madam of faces and gestures, then you can also rely on a relatively longer shelf life with a good surgeon and by hitching your frumpy wagon to a successful gentleman star. Now, of course, without these luxurious and often costly additions, have you been to a plastic surgeon? Good grief. The actor is simply replaced in the professional world. You get a younger person and the circle of life continues. But in the amateur world, there is no such luck. The average suburban company may benefit from one male gifted amateur in a hundred year cycle. And so they'll often have no choice but to continue to use him again and again and again. Like a poor family, putting out the old stallion every spring, draining him empty until he's produced as much as he can, even though he's had two hip replacements and really should have been shot a decade earlier and sent to the glue factory in an unmarked box. Yes, unfortunately, the male gifted amateur's talents will see him achieve many leading roles, but like Val Kilmer, his age will ravage him to the point of audience exhaustion. With people watching shows, you know, dumbfounded and perplexed at how, oh, I don't know, a 65-year-old could play Curly opposite 17-year-old Laurie in the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical hit about the gay community in the Deep South, Oklahoma. It just doesn't work. For females, it's again slightly different. In all theatre, women saturate the market, and so competition is fierce, uh, even on the amateur stage, and their trajectory will often be age-specific and regimented so. So loosely, you'd have something like uh, 14 to 17 years of age, the flight of nitwit, age 17 to 20, the geeky best friend, 21 years of age, bang on, beautiful young girl with everything going for her, 22 to 40, sarcastic and jaded friend or aunt, aged 40 to 50, divorcee, and this is the art imitating life period, 50 to 60, old crone, and then 60 plus, grandma, who dies soon, please. The last people to mention would be the amateur backstage crew who, honestly, I can't even be asked bothering with. I can't see what they get out of it, Sean. Honestly. No, I can't be bothered with them. I mean, think about it. Think about them. You want to sit there in the dark for three hours, occasionally getting up to push large bits of furniture around, in the dark, to a half-filled auditorium, in the dark... For no money? In Hounslow? I do not understand what they get out of it. I actually think anybody who does that ought to see a doctor or one of those lady doctor assistants. I've said before, Sean, you need to have a real penchant for the macabre with something like that. I mean, you wonder what it is they really get out of it. Are they secretly stealing things from the actors' handbags while the actors are on stage? You don't know. You don't know. Are they secretly following the younger girls at the chorus home? Hmm? Or fantasising about them as they zip up their sleeping bags at night? I wouldn't like to say. Are they aliens? Are they aliens? You can't answer, Sean. Horrid aliens in disguise? Possibly. Very possibly. Otherwise, I simply can't understand it. I mean, I have some experience. 
I used to shift my mother about in the dead of night in complete darkness when she was bedbound and weighed thirty stones. But, I mean, there was a reason I did that, obviously. If I didn't, she'd have taken toilets on my Georgian pelt. And much like the eventual dialysis machine we got her, that would have really been taking the piss. No, they're rotten to the core, those wing grobblers, and I can't abide them, and that's all there is to it. Sorry, not sorry. You're listening to Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. Next up, we'll be looking at how shows are built in amateur theatre, looking in depth at the process from the auditions through to rehearsals and right up to when the show closes early because they haven't sold enough tickets. But first, a word from this week's sponsors. (laughs) My name is Jemima. (laughs) I'm fine. (laughs) I ran out onto the road the other day and I didn't mean to. (laughs) Somebody nearly hit me in their car. If they had hit me at five miles per hour, I would have been okay. If they'd hit me at ten miles an hour, I would have hurt my elbow. It would have broken. If they had hit me at twenty miles an hour, I would have really hurt myself and maybe gone in a coma. If they had hit me at 30 miles an hour, I would have died. And come back to haunt them. Is that what you want? Do you want me to come back and haunt you, you bad driver? Bad drivers get haunted by dead kids all the time. They come back every single night. I'll be at the foot of your bed. I may only look like a little girl. But I'll haunt you every single night. Think next time you drive like that. Think next time. Don't speed. Drive safely, please. You don't want to see me when I come back from the dead. Do you? Drive safely sponsors Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. Miriam Margulies told me that the best thing about seeing amateur shows is that they're so poorly attended. If you buy a ticket at the back, you're very likely to have free seats either side of you, allowing you to really stretch out when you're sleeping through the show. The Harry Potter star, famous for portraying the lesbian gardening teacher Prof Sprouts, has been voluntarily homeless since 1994, when burglars frightened her out of indoor dwelling. She prefers now to be out on the streets, and as she puts it, Always moving, always grooving, always getting on good. She will, however, occasionally buy up matinee tickets so that she can sleep in a dark and warm place for a couple of hours. Amateur dramatic shows provide a cheap alternative to the professional matinee, whilst also suitably proving to be so boring and uninspiring that she's rarely disturbed by her own intrigue in what's happening on stage or indeed by any audience laughter and applause. It is true, though, that some amateur shows can be interesting and entertaining, and I'm pleased to say I've met at least one person who knows at least one person who's seen and enjoyed a show, and I met to three, well, in Earth years, and that has been hotly contested, as I recall. Uh, A small man once came up to me in Cairo in 1974, as it happens. He grabbed my arm and thanked me for returning. 
When I quizzed him, he told me that I was 300 years old and was a wandering soul of the universe, bound to do good and bring love forevermore. I remember being so enraptured by him that it left me in a trance-like state. I mean, I spent the whole day just full of life, floating from stall to stall, smiling at strangers and, and vowing to change my life and search for greater meaning. I felt I'd truly found myself. That was until later in the day when I saw the same man in a public toilet washing himself in the urinals and giving the same spiel to a dead rat in the corner. Since then, I've stuck with my official birth certification number, or birthday, but uh, I'm always tempted by the what-if, you know. <laughs> One thing I think does court the amateur shows is controversy. No, I'm not talking about the high level of sexual offences committed in the church halls and community dressing rooms of the amateur world. That's hardly interesting or indeed important, but rather representation in the choice of show. In our industry, people are so often judgmental about amateur show choice because it's often at odds with the race, creed or colour of the performers themselves. It's true that in the professional theatre, you'll often hear people saying it's racist for white, middle-class, villagey folk to play others of a different hue and that they are taking roles from those actors who are the right nationality or colour who would otherwise play them. But... Have you tried casting the King and I in Kidderminster? It's bloody murder! You'd be hard-pressed to find one Thai restaurant there, let alone 20 Thai children of different ages, plus another 14 Thai women, as the play calls for. I suppose you'd say, why do it at all then? Which I find most troubling. Are you really saying that the good people of West Byfleet should never again have the chance to see Miss Saigon in their local church hall because you regard a few very well-meaning white privileged people overdoing their eyeliner as plain hateful? Good grief! What have we come to? Actors are actors, and the amateur theatre is the amateur theatre, and audiences our audiences, and they deserve to have these great shows kept alive in their almost desolate communities. They shouldn't need to drive for as long as five to ten minutes to a professional theatre to see it done in your very prescriptive nature, as with maturity, nuance, and actors who are representative of the race of the characters and not offences. I mean, boring. It's pissy gone mad. Think about it. Why shouldn't I be able to see Showboat in Wrightslip? What's the harm with a Bombay dream since Sunningdale? And if the Isle of Wight Operatic Society wants to put on Brigadoon, then I say let them. What is a kilt between friends? Not enough coverage, I would imagine. I mean, that's a bit of a joke, obviously, but there is a serious point to be made. I mean... Generally, of course, I, I wouldn't dream of going to the Isle of Wight, for instance. It's like a floating hospice. The stench of death is around every corner. But if they want to do it, then let them. Christ knows they ought to be allowed something before their final months or weeks. We mustn't stifle the actors' companies and the communities. For goodness sakes, Mark Rylance played a gypsy traveller man in Jerusalem and nobody battered an eyelid. A lot of producers got battered, surely, by the gypsy community, but that's as par for the course. No, he did a fine job, and people accepted it because it was good, honest fun, I think. I never saw it, 
so I can't be shocked. Sorry, Mark. Slap my hands and call me naughty. <laughs> and before any of you write in about my using the word gypsy, please remember that I have a long and loving relationship with the community. If you look in my CD collection, you'll find the Gypsy Kings. In my Biscuit Tim, Gypsy Creams. And in my vinyl collection, you'll find Barbara Dixon's cracking bit of popular music, Caravan. So I have nothing but good things to say about them, and I always will. Pikeys, on the other hand, are evil. Do not trust them with your iguana. There we go. I feel we have left no stone unturned there. And perhaps if there was a stone that was left unturned, perhaps it was just a bit too heavy. Um, I don't know what I mean by that. Never mind. We'll just crack on, shall we? And so to correspondence. This week, Handigras Tesselset, 59 from a Somerset, writes in with a very curious question indeed. <laughs> Hello, Handigras. She writes, Dear Sir Smooth, Firstly, can I say how much I enjoy this podcast? The effort you put into it is quite extraordinary, and I found it so educational. Also, your voice is creamy, like when I put my Bourneville into my Horlicks, and I could listen to you until my lounge, kitchen, dining room, bedrooms, cupboards were full of farmyard animals. <laughs> I think, Handy Grass, the phrase you're looking for is until the cows come home. <laughs> she continues. I'm a woman who has been looking for something a bit different in my life. I recently tried archery, but had to stop when the shudder of the arrow coursing through my body as it left the bow caused me to jolt in ecstasy and fire the dart into the instructor's eye. Oh, how unfortunate! Oh, Andy Grass! Oh, in the eye! <laughs> she continues. I thought to write in this week because I have tried amateur dramatics as part of these changes in my life, and I'm enjoying it, don't be wrong, but when it comes to auditioning for the main parts, I just become crippled with frightenedness. <laughs> Andy Grass, I don't think that's a word, frightenedness. <laughs> she continues. Last summer, I tried to go out for the part of Sally Bowles in Cabaret, but I was so frightened, I vomited over the entire production team just confirming my name to them at the beginning of the audition. Suffice to say, I didn't get the part. Oh, well, I bet you didn't, Andy Grass. <laughs> oh, she continues. How can I combat these nerves? What am I so afraid of? And can you say, Handy Grass, you're beautiful, kiss me, so that I can play it over and over again whilst I'm dipping my Bourneville in bed? Best wishes and kisses, your Handy. Oh, handy. Oh, handy, 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 handy. Grass, tet, tet, tet. 59 from a Somerset. Well, firstly, I won't be saying, handy, grass, you're beautiful. Kiss me today, I'm afraid. As a rule, I only take requests through my agent, who is my partner, Sean, as you know. So if you want me to say, handy, grass, you're beautiful. Kiss me. Then just pop another letter into Sean with the words... Handagrass, you're beautiful. Kiss me on them, and I'll have a think. And if I get the time, I will certainly say, Handagrass, you're beautiful. Kiss me for you. I would be very happy to do it. 
Now, onto your question. Nerves. Oh, yes, nerves, is it? Oh, well, well, we all get them. Um, well, I don't, because uh, I'm perfectly good. I mean, I'm, well, I'm an old hand, as they say. A very warm old hand. One of the best. Uh, a stallion of an actor whose singular look down the lens or out into the barren darkness of the auditoria is enough to make the securest of wives quake in their knickers. Handy grass, you're beautiful. Kiss me. But I do know, as you say, that many people get nervous in audition, like yourself, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, and you're 59, so you'll probably stand there wondering what the production team are thinking about you, or probably looking you up and down, handy grass, judging your clothes and, and your hair. And then you're wondering, well, are they thinking about the wrinkles or my nose, or my big nose? Or are they thinking I look like quite a sad person? Perhaps you are second-guessing whether or not they can tell you murdered your archery instructor or touch yourself at night to an octogenarian actor's podcast. Handy Cross, you're beautiful. Kiss me. Well, whatever it is, I have a few tips that have got me through some sticky situations. But being that they're mostly about evading the law and not about stifling audition nerves, we'll perhaps save them for another time and instead go to a few Sean, my partner, as you well know, gave me ten minutes ago to make up the time on the podcast. I've also added a little bit of shit around them so you'll get your money's worth, Handygrass, don't worry. Here's my top three tips for saying piss off, you bastards, to those nerves. I hope they help. Top tip one. Try to imagine all of the audience panel naked. Their old bodies will be a familiar sight to you, Handy Grass, and that familiarity will put you at ease. The cheekiness of the situation might also distract from the seriousness of the auditioning. I mean, after all, who can help but smile at a pair of droopy, listless boobies? Top tip tit two. Top, top tit two. Tip two, sorry. <laughs> I was still thinking about the boobies. Sing a little song to yourself during the audition inside your head. This will need much practice at home first, though, as it requires essentially a separation of yourself from your body and mind. You train yourself so that essentially, as soon as you begin the audition, you go into a trance-like state, your body continues auditioning, and on the outset you appear normal. Inside, though, you're concentrating very hard on singing a little song of comfort and encouragement to calm you down and spur you on. You're singing to come and to spur. Sing to come and spur. Sing calm spur. Something along the lines of... You're doing really well, keep going. The panel are on your side. You're doing really well, keep going. After we can go for some pie, mm-mm. Would you like apple or chicken? You can have whatever pie you wish. Cause you're doing really well, keep going. And you're looking pretty fine and swish, yes ma'am. Top tip three. Finally, and I think this is the best of the three, just take a big deep breath handy and man the fuck up. Nobody really cares if you play the part or not outside the four walls of the disused nursery you're stood auditioning in. So get on with it, finish the audition, so everyone can go down the pub and continue bitching about each other like in normal amateur dramatic societies. I do hope that helps. To hand a grass tete-a-tete, fifty-nine from Somerset. To you, I say, hand a grass, you're beautiful, kiss me. Good day. Well, that's all we have time for today. Join me next time and we'll be discussing those fondling tactics.
reptile snakes of the theatre, directors. And of course, the art of masking their indiscretions, direction. As always, I'll be asking the all-important questions, like... If the actor is directed by the director, then who directs the director? And, if the actor who is directed by the director is directed by another director, then who directs that director? And finally, you guessed it, if the actor who is directed by the director is directed by another director, who in turn has his own director, then really, what the fuck is going on? Because that is mental. You've been listening to Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. And so, until next time, to you I say, good day.